Good evening, everyone. It is good to be with you this evening. I am looking forward to the upcoming meeting that you all are going to have, and I'm happy to be here now, and I'm looking forward to being here then. If you would go on and open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Daniel, chapter 5, we're going to be talking about the final few hours leading up to the fall of the Babylonian Empire. And if you remember in the first four chapters of the book of Daniel, we've seen Daniel being taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But even though he's been taken captive, he remains faithful and loyal to God. He finds favor in God's sight. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has a couple of dreams that he needs interpreted. Well, he calls in the wise men and the enchanters, and he tries to have them interpret the dream. They can't do it. He calls in Daniel. He's able to help. Nebuchadnezzar rewards him by promoting him in the kingdom, and he gives him high-ranking positions uh, throughout the the kingdom of Babylon. So Daniel is rewarded for that. Well, here in chapter 5, Daniel is the current prime minister of Babylon. And chapter 5 really shows us the convert or the, the transition from the head of gold to the chest and arms of silver, as seen in chapter 2, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That head of gold being the Babylonian Empire, and the, the chest and arms of silver being the Medes and the Persians. And if you remember, Babylon truly was a head of gold under King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had created this wealthy, powerful, expansive empire. In fact, Babylon was the largest and most powerful city the world had ever seen up to that point. But ever since the departure of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon began to decline into a nation of sin and debauchery. And we see that here in the beginning of chapter 5. In the beginning of chapter 5, we were introduced in the middle of an idolatrous feast that is full of desecration, that is full of sin and blasphemy. And understand that history tells us that this was a vile, sinful feast. This was something that probably isn't even appropriate to talk about in the pulpit, some of the things that went on during feasts like this. But this was a reflection of the society and of the Babylonian Empire at this time. But it's during this feast that God intervenes and pronounces doom on the Babylonian Empire by writing on the wall. And I believe we need to take special note of this chapter because I believe that all civilizations can fall into this same trap. By becoming powerful, by becoming independent and having a great amount of wealth and influence. But if they're not careful, they can self-destruct. They can go down a moral path that leads them to destruction. And we need to take special note of this and because this is a relevant and applicable chapter to even us today. Well, let's go on and begin reading verse 1 of Daniel chapter 5. Verse 1 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And we'll stop right there because we need to understand who Belshazzar is. Who is Belshazzar? Well, we believe that he's between 35 to 40 years old at this time. But more importantly, we need to understand that he is idolatrous, he is immoral, and he is a sinful man. And he just happened to be the one who was reigning the night Babylon fell. Seventy years have now passed from Daniel chapter 1. So that would put Daniel now about in his 80s. And 23 years have passed 
from the end of chapter 4. So Daniel actually doesn't record anything between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 1. But history fills in the gaps for us. And it's important that we understand what happens in that 23 years so we can better understand the story tonight. Well, after Nebuchadnezzar died, his son took over the throne. And that's when the empire really began to decline. And this son of Nebuchadnezzar's is mentioned in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52. But his reign only lasted two years because his own brother-in-law killed him. And that brother-in-law reigned for four years. And he's mentioned in Jeremiah 39. But after he died, his son took over. But that only lasted nine months. Because conspirators decided to beat him to death. And one of those conspirators appointed a man named Nabonidus to be king. And Nabonidus reigned over Babylon for 17 years. But there's a problem. Nabonidus was not a part of the royal family. He didn't come. He was not a direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, history tells us that he either married the widow of Nebuchadnezzar or one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters as a way of marrying into the royal family. But whichever he married, whether it was the widow or the daughter, that woman had a son, and his name was Belshazzar. And so, after all of this, after marrying into royalty, Nabonidus still was a little uncomfortable about this, knowing that he truly wasn't a direct descendant. He was a little intimidated. And he actually moved his kingdom across the Arabian desert into Tamah. And for 14 of his 17 years of being king, he never stepped foot in Babylon. But in order to maintain power in Babylon, he appointed that son, Belshazzar, to be co-king with him. So Nabonidus resided in Tamah, Belshazzar reigned in Babylon as co-king. Well, during all of this, Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians, was on a quest to conquer the world. And he was being pretty successful at it too. And it's during this time that he approaches Nabonidus while he's at Tama, and he overtakes Nabonidus and his army. And Nabonidus is taken into captivity and never sees Babylon again for the rest of his life. So Nabonidus has been defeated and now Cyrus is approaching the city of Babylon, surrounding the walls, ready to overtake it. And that's where we are in our story. That's what's happened in these 23 years. And right now, while this feast is going on that we're reading about, Cyrus and his army is approaching and surrounding the walls of Babylon. So hopefully that will help us understand the story a little bit more as we move forward. Let's continue. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And so he tastes the wine, and after that he commands that these gold and silver vessels that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, he commands that those be brought in. Now, you may have noticed that I just said his father. His text says his father, Nebuchadnezzar. But it is highly, highly unlikely that that is his literal father. If anything, it could possibly be his grandfather. 
But the fact of the matter is, there's no Hebrew word that actually means grandfather. So they would have said something like father's father. Or for example, how it's written here could mean ancestor or predecessor. And so it's highly, highly unlikely that it was his literal father. But regardless, this descendant of Nebuchadnezzar made a great feast. Now keep in mind, he's making this feast, yet right outside his city walls are the Medes and Persians. And that's something he was well aware of. But he didn't seem too concerned about it, did he? Why would he not be concerned that the Medes and the Persians, that King Cyrus was right outside the city walls. Remember, Babylon was the greatest city the world had ever known up to this point. The walls to the city were believed to have been 87 feet thick, 350 feet high, and on top of those 350 foot walls were towers that extended another 100 feet so watchmen could survey the horizon and give warning and, and notify of incoming danger. The city was surrounded by bronze gates. What's significant about bronze? It's heavy. It's strong. Enemies can't just fling them open and walk in at will. The Euphrates River flowed right through the city. They had the most powerful army on earth. So what did Belshazzar have to be afraid of? In his mind, nothing. So among a thousand of his lords in the middle of this great feast, he starts drinking wine. And the implication there is that he becomes drunk. And he calls for the gold and silver vessels that were taken from the temple of God. And if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar took these vessels when he took the captives out of Jerusalem and when he desecrated the temple in chapter 1. And so Belshazzar was aware of this. He knew where these these vessels came from. He knew the history of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what Nebuchadnezzar had conquered. He knew Nebuchadnezzar's legacy. He had to have known where these vessels came from, making it a blatant mockery. Mocking the God of Israel, drinking the vessels, drinking wine from the vessels that came from the temple of God. And so with this knowledge, getting drunk from these vessels was a blatant mockery. In verse 3, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and the lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so they used these sacred vessels not only to drink wine out of, but then they proceeded to praise the false gods of the Babylonians. And look what happens in verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Now imagine this. In the middle of this drunken party, where the king and his wives and his concubines are getting drunk from the vessels of God, a hand appears and begins to write on the wall. And understand, it's at this point in Babylonian history, that God looks at them and says, enough is enough. Verse 6, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. So the king's face, whose face was probably red and rosy from partying and drinking, all of a sudden changed color from fear and anxiety. 
Well, just how scared was he? Well, the text tells us that his limbs gave way. Seems to indicate that he almost lost the ability to stand. He almost probably fell to his feet, to his knees. It says that his knees knocked together. Now, I've been scared before. But I don't know that I've ever been scared to the point that my knees literally trembled and knocked together. But Belshazzar here was scared. And it's amazing how Cyrus and his army is on the outside. And that didn't seem to bother him that much. But when he sees this supernatural hand of God writing on the walls, it scares him to death. And in verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. If you remember, these are the exact same people that Nebuchadnezzar called in when he needed something to be interpreted, but they were useless. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now why does Belshazzar say that they'd be the third ruler in the kingdom? Well, it could just be that he was actually going to give them a high-ranking position, but odds are it was, you're going to be right under me and Nabonidus. Remember, co-king, So those two held the first two positions. So this person probably would have had the position right under them. Regardless, it's a position of high authority that was going to be rewarded with gold, the most valuable commodity, and royal clothing. And in verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Now why couldn't they read it? Well, it could have been that Maybe it was actually in a foreign language that they didn't understand. Maybe it was in a language that God created Himself. Maybe they were too drunk to be able to read anything. The point is, God never intended them to be able to interpret this. No, God had something else in store. God had something else that would give Him the glory. In verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Notice that it says his color changed again. That's the second time that happened. It almost seems like when the wise men came in, it almost seemed like he had a moment to catch his breath and say, okay, everything's going to be okay here. But when they couldn't do it, it says his color changed again, and his lords were perplexed. And doesn't this go to show you that the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of these men is nothing compared to the power and the wisdom of God? Verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And Nebuchadnezzar said something very similar about Daniel during his lifetime. And listen to what else she says. She says, In the days of your father... Light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. 
And so in the midst of all this anxiety, in the midst of all this confusion, in walks the queen and she says, listen, there is a man in this kingdom who knows how to interpret this. He has the wisdom, he has the power to get it done. He is the most capable of all the wise men. Go and get him. And they do. In verse 13 it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. Now that doesn't seem like much of a verse. But it really is. It is a very impactful verse. And here's why. Because Daniel, remember, was the prime minister of Babylon. If anybody could have been a part of the party that was going on, Daniel could have been there. But he wasn't. Daniel should have been somebody that they could have said, Hey, Daniel, come over here and interpret this for us. But they couldn't just call him from across the room. They had to make an effort to go out and get him. Daniel was separating himself from the sin that was going on. And that's something that Daniel had done his entire life. Daniel was never seen hanging around this sorry group of people. Daniel was never seen involved in things that were defiling or sinful. Daniel stood alone as a teenager when he refused to eat the food from the king's table. Daniel stood alone as a grown man, keeping his faith in God, even as he was getting power and recognition from the king. Daniel, now in his 80s, stands alone, separated from the sin and defilement of the king king and the kingdom, keeping his loyalty to God. And so, Daniel is brought in, once again making his physical entry alone, but together with God. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. In other words, I know about you, Daniel. I know what you've done, and I know what you're capable of doing. And to me, this is an interesting statement as well, because even being prime minister, the king has to say, I know about you. It's not like they knew each other on a first name basis. It doesn't seem like that, does it? Seems like the best Belshazzar could say is, I know of you. To me, that indicates Daniel continuing to, to keep that separation there. In verse 15, Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now this wasn't Daniel's first rodeo. You know, Daniel has done this before. He's been there, done that. And he wasn't intimidated by the situation, nor was he impressed with the king's offer. I mean, why would Daniel want to be third ruler in the kingdom? Daniel was a prophet of God. Daniel probably knew that what was about to happen to Babylon was their destruction. He probably wasn't impressed by the offer to be third ruler in the kingdom. In fact, I'm pretty certain that we know that he wasn't, based on what is said in verse 17. It says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts before yourself and give your rewards to another. In other words, I don't need what you have or what you have to offer. And that, to me, is an amazing statement 
In a world where men strive for recognition, strive for achievement, they want to be acknowledged. In a world where people strive for power and wealth. Here's Daniel saying, I don't need that. I don't want that. Daniel shows that he is a man of courage, that he's a man of character. And he goes on to say, Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. And so here's Daniel acknowledging that Nebuchadnezzar was a great and a powerful ruler. But he goes on and says this about Nebuchadnezzar. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was that was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom, sets over it whom he will. And so Daniel here is referencing Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power but his abuse of that power when he became proud and when God humbled him. And if you remember, God humbled him in chapter 4 and it took seven years for Nebuchadnezzar to learn the lesson, to recognize that God was the true God that deserved all credit. Well, from here, Daniel goes on and gives three indictments against Belshazzar. In verse 22, he says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And so the first indictment is that, listen, you knew everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You knew his rise to power. You knew how he became proud. You knew how he needed to be humbled. You knew that God caused him to fall to his knees. But you've ignored all this. You yourself have failed to humble your heart. Then he goes on. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And so the second indictment is you have knowingly blasphemed the one true God. You drank from the vessels. You made a mockery of him. And the third indictment is, not only are you aware of God and have you blasphemed Him, but you've continued on in idolatry. You've ignored Him. The three indictments that Daniel makes against Belshazzar. And from here, Daniel proceeds to interpret the writing that has been written on the plaster walls. In verse 24, Then from His presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. Well, what does all that mean? In verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. So Mene means numbered. 
In other words, God has called your number. Your number is up. You're finished. And note that he says that twice. Verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tekel means to be weighed and found too light. In those days when things were weighed, the standard weight went on one side of the scale and the commodity that was being weighed against it went on the other and they needed to balance out. But what's being said here is that God is the standard and Babylon is being weighed against it. But they're being found too light. They come up short. They don't meet the standard. They're too light in morality. They're too light in virtue and character. In verse 28, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, Perez is the singular for parsin, but it means to divide. And remember who was outside the walls? The Medes and the Persians. The Babylonians were going to be divided into the Medes and the Persians. So the writing on the wall is this. Numbered, numbered, too light, divided. It means that Belshazzar's kingdom is going to be destroyed. Why? Because they're lacking in moral and spiritual virtue. They don't meet God's standard and the encompassing army around the city walls will divide them. And so these words were inscribed about the king in front of the king for all to see. And I almost wonder, and I don't think he did realize the immediate implications of those words. Because he goes on in verse 27, or verse 29, it says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. If Belshazzar knew what was about to come, I don't even think he would have gone through with that. It wouldn't have mattered at that point. And Daniel probably didn't care about this because he knew what was probably going to happen to Babylon. And look at what happens in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Well, how did that happen? I thought Babylon was a great fortified city that couldn't be penetrated. How did they conquer it? Well, Herodias the historian tells us that the Medes and Persians built a dam on the Euphrates. Now remember, the Euphrates went through the city of Babylon. In fact, it went under the walls of Babylon. And so they diverted all of the water coming into the Euphrates except a small, little, shallow portion. And during the middle of this debaucherous feast that we've read about, the water began to fall, and it went to about the height of the soldiers' knees. And when that water fell, they were able to walk under the walls of the city take out the guards, overtake the city, and overtake the Babylonian Empire. So what's the application? What does this chapter mean to us? Well, Babylon was a powerful empire. They were truly that golden head. They were strong. They were fortified. They were independent. They had a structured government. They were the most advanced city the world had ever seen. They had resources. In fact, they even knew God, knew of God. Nebuchadnezzar made him known, but they had forgotten about him. They turned into a society that embraced drunkenness, they embraced pornography, idolatry, and they were in a moral freefall. 
And so what about us? I mean, we too are a powerful nation, aren't we? And our nation knows God. But sadly, our nation is turning its back on God. Drunkenness is commonplace. It's made light of. It's made fun of. But the fact of the matter is more than 200 people a day die from alcohol-related problems in the United States. Pornography is rampant. And I'm not talking about behind-closed-doors pornography. I'm talking about billboards, advertisements, television, movies. Pornography is everywhere. Idolatry is everywhere. People are constantly elevating whatever they can above God and worshiping it, putting it first in their lives. We rely on the wisdom of humans, just like Belshazzar did when he called in the magicians and the enchanters. We rely on human wisdom to give us advice, to tell us how to live our lives. We're prideful. Simply put, we live in a sinful, sinful nation. And Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. So what do we do about it? Well, even though we live in a sin-sick society, we have to be like Daniel. We have to. Remember, Daniel was prime minister in Babylon, but he was never found involved in the sin of the nation. He always put God first, no matter what this is situation. He never compromised his convictions. He never compromised his faith. He lived in the world, but he was not a part of the world. And we have to have that same mindset. We have to be able to stand up for God. We have to be able to testify about God to others, like Daniel did, while still separating ourselves from the sin that surrounds us. Now, Christian principles have been woven into the fabric of our nation from its founding. But our nation has slowly started to rip apart those threads and those seams. And if we're not careful, we may not be able to sew it back together. And so we have to be careful. There may be a point when God looks at us and says, enough is enough. But even if God does that, even if he looks at America and says enough is enough, just because a nation goes down does not mean God's people go down. God's people are given a hope. God's people are given a hope that endures that no matter what goes on around them, no matter what happens to the nation they may live in, they have a hope that their residence will be in heaven. And we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep that in mind as we move forward. Well, I hope that this lesson has been interesting and beneficial to you all. I know that it's been a great study for me. I've really enjoyed it. But again, that hope that we just talked about, that's something that can only come to those who have given their lives to Christ. And if there is anybody here tonight who hasn't done that, this is an excellent opportunity to begin that relationship with Him, to repent, to confess, to be baptized, and to be one of His children. But if you have become a Christian and maybe you have let your faith slide or maybe you haven't had the conviction that Daniel has, if anything that we can do for you, maybe you, we need to pray for you. If there's anything that we can do to help for you this evening, please come forward as together we stand and as we sing.